You are listening to The Cycling Podcast. Hello and welcoming you after an opening weekend when Jan Tratnik ruled himself out of contention for the Tour of Flanders by winning Omloop Het Newsblad, thus exposing himself to the most obstinate curse in professional cycling as discussed last week. And Wout van Aert did the opposite by proving faster than all except Rick Bossut, the bearded wonder of Belgian cycling who enjoyed 15 minutes of fame after half-wheeling van Aert aboard his electric scooter following W. VA's victory in Kuna, Brussels, Kuna on Sunday. My name is Daniel Freeber. I'm the host of this episode of the Cycling Podcast in which we'll ruminate over a dominant start to the cobbled classics for Visma Lisa Bike, a frankly despotic beginning to Jonas Vingegaard's tour build-up in Spain, and perhaps we'll also assess the motivational tactics employed last week by Patrick Lefebvre with Julien Alaphilippe. Joining me to do all of that today is a man who wrote Omloop Het Newsblad, probably called Het Volk when he started, yeah. seven times, the last of them in 2021, becoming such a legend in Belgium that he has, or had, he'll tell us in a minute, his own fan club there with an Instagram account that proclaimed his the best moustache in cycling, hence better than <laughs> Rick Boss, Rick Bossuits. Rick Bossuits was more of a a goatee. Um, it's Mitch Docker. Um, first of all, Mitch, do you know who I'm talking about, Mitch Mitch. I'm um, sorry, Rick Bossuit. This I, I don't. Picture I, went around the world. The fellow, the rather sort of sturdy-looking fellow aboard the electric scooter. He's kind of a oh, chaperone, yes, I believe. Yes, yes, yes. I, I have yeah. seen the clips. Legend. He was so cool on the on the scooter. I saw him running, um, and then I saw him on the scooter. Um, I read an interview. I read an interview with him actually, um, with Sportser, I think, and he talks about his pre-classics training regime. <laughs> oh, um, no, he, he talks about he talked about how he has to be in good, make sure that he's in good shape. So he's classics, he's in it, good he's in good shape now, is he? <laughs> yeah, I love that. He's got good legs. He's got good legs at the moment. Uh, oh. He's just come down from altitude. Um, <laughs> yeah, and Mitch um, fan club does it still exist? They do, yeah. You know, they've, I, I've met up with them the, each year. I go across to Europe, and we've become closer since I've stopped racing. Um, I've got a bit more time to drink beers and have fun. Great crew, really great crew, and they're still supporting me in my endeavors. I don't know why or how, but <laughs> it's um, it's very fun. They just said, "Look, we just can't find someone else to support," and I've suggested other guys, but they said, "Look, they just they don't have the mo, they don't have the mullet." Um, but they're a good crew. Shout out to them if they're listening. Great crew. Also joining us today, like some mystical warlock or grim reaper of French cycling. Um, for we often talk about curses that French riders need to break or will break when he's around. Yet they couldn't shatter the one that has prevented a Frenchman from ever winning Omloop uh, this weekend. Um, Francois Tomazot. Uh, Francois wasn't aware of this until it was put to uh, Christophe Laporte at the start on Saturday that no French rider has ever won Um Omloop had news, but much in the same way that no Frenchman has ever won the Tour de France. Um, not in living memory anyway. <laughs> Most of our living memories anyway. Yeah, well, there's still the, the French are still the you know record number of winners for the Tour de France. But I, I agree, it was in another century, uh, well, in another time, on another planet, maybe. Um, and Omloop, I think that yeah, obviously uh, no French guys, but but. It's, it's the same stuff. It's the sort of race that for a long time uh, you didn't have many foreigners, uh, do, you know, racing those those uh, 
those races. It, it was nice actually to see the uh, Spanish champion jersey at the front, you know, mm. at the weekend uh, in those classics, which means we've, we've seen, of course, lots of uh, Spanish riders, you know, Flitch or Oscar Freire, I mean, you know, do well in, in the classics. But, but it, it, you know, more and more we get in there. I mean, the, the, the Spaniards like, start to like those races. And uh, but unfortunately, the French uh, riders, not so much. But, well, we'll see. The season is just starting. You know, I, I, I had a thought straight away. I was I was sure that Sylvain Chavanel must have been up there in Umlop Head Newsblad, a great classics rider. Yeah, he was. But, I mean, like, like he actually doesn't have, as far as I can remember, a big win on the, you know, he, he missed out shortly in, uh, in, in a few monuments. But, I mean, you know, he was a great classics rider. You had other ones. I mean, you had Frédéric Guédon was probably the best. Guédon, mm. uh, Roubaix yeah, winner, of course. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But, but yeah, that, there's, there's always been guys who liked the, 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 the Belgian or the Dutch classics and, or the Ardennes or uh, in France like uh, Gilbert Duclos-Lassalle or Marc Madio. But they were kind of, uh, we said this a million times, but the Tour de France is so much the focus of most French riders that whatever your qualities, you know, even if you're a born cobbles rider, you, you'll, you'll probably sacrifice your your chances or part of your chances to to be there on time for the tour you know that what that, that's the thing that matters even for Duclos Lassalle Maggio it was more important to be at the tour than winning Roubaix in many ways so yeah uh, it may be we're uh, because Italians have a great record on, in in the classics, maybe we 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 we, we, we you know the French are, are now the lame ducks of uh, of classics. I mean the <laughs> ones who are performing. I mean of the big cycling nations, the ones who are doing not so great. You know, mind you, the Brits have not been doing too well either on the classics. I must say. So let's wait and see. Um, Francois, in preparation for this episode, I was just recapping or revising some of Patrick Lefebvre's sort of litany of backhanded motivational sort of barbs um, towards his own riders. And I found one towards that was directed at Chavanel a few years ago. And it was only um, by reading this, I remembered that Sylvain Chavanel was for a very brief moment, um, I can't remember which year it was, maybe 2014, he was number one in the world, ranked number one in the world. And um, Lefebvre sort of suggested that his head had fallen off because he'd become um, number one in the world. Um, but yeah, uh, he, he didn't really... Chavanel, Chavanel is a very nice guy. He, he was a very nice mm. guy, but he was, he was too... It was too much of a nice guy, and that—that's, you, you know, my old, uh, my, my old motto or uh, uh, conviction that uh, you, you need to be an asshole to be a to be a great uh, rider, especially on the classics, probably. And uh, well, if we get if we go back to, we, we'll probably discuss Alaphilippe. But I think that that that's one of the problems with the French riders. I mean, the, the great champions we we had were assholes like uh, Fignon, Hino. Uh, no, but I mean, you know, and, and I'm sure they accept that. Uh, <laughs> even Marc Madiot. I mean, this guy, you know, but Chavanel was a kind of a softy, you know, he, he was, he uh, was not a killer. And, and I mean, the, maybe one of the reasons for that, which is not the case for Alaphilippe, but it's lots of these French riders, they, they spend, and we said that before as well, they, they, they used to spend so many years in the comforts of a French team with a good salary, racing, Bessege, uh, maybe Paris, you know, uh, on home turf, and actually not many risks, not taking many risks, not challenging themselves. And that, that was a problem with Chavanel. He started to perform when he was with Quickstep. The years he spent with Cofidis or, uh, 
you know, Bernardo at the beginning, he didn't have to win. You know, he had he was paid well to just to be there. So I think that's that's probably the um, that used to be a problem. I think it's changing as we see with you know the young Grupa FDJ riders coming up, or even Decathlon uh, AG Tour. You're changing their philosophy, but you know it, it takes time to change. Chaps, um, we must crack on with news roundup, but first, and um, we'll we'll have a corrections corner, a quick visit to corrections corner, and um, first one of the season. Um, in last week's episode, I was talking about Joachim Agostinho, the Portuguese legend, and um, the tragic circumstances of his death. And I said that so I talked about this journey from Faro to Lisbon and inexplicably I said that it was about 10 hours um, we were contacted by an illustrious um, form, former Giro d'Italia winning listener um, who put me right on that it's about three hours from Faro to Lisbon um, also last week um, our venerable colleague Rob Hatch talked about how upset Carlos Rodriguez would be about the Ruta del Sol being reduced to just a five kilometer time trial um, not only was Carlos Rodriguez not on the start list but Ineos <laughs> Grenadiers weren't even on the start <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, apologies for those. Um, we'll we'll kick off with things. Well, talking about things that did happen. Um, we'll kick off with one day races, and I'll go in order of importance with Omloop Het Newsblad. First, took place on Saturday, as I've already told you. Jan Tratnik of Visma Lisa Bike, also the first Slovenian to ever win Omloop Het Newsblad, and um, he won the men's race escaping with Niels Pollitt of UAE Team Emirates on the flat-ish run into Ninova and easily beating Pollitt in the sprint. This race was followed by the women's edition, the first women's omloop in which another Visma Lisa bike rider, Mariana Voss, had ever taken part. And who should go on to win but Mariana Voss? The following day saw many of the same riders in action, men and women. The men in Kurna, Brussels, Kurna, where Wout van Aert spent what seemed like the whole afternoon on a lovely group outing with Tim Wellens and Oyer Lascano, going on to comfortably beat that pair in the sprint. That was Van Aert's first ever victory in Kuna. No women's race there, but instead we had the Omloop Van Het Hageland, which was won by Kristen Faulkner of EF Education first. One other elite women's race at the weekend, the Classica de Almeria, that was won by Lauren Stevens of Siniska Cycling, who found themselves in the news for other reasons yesterday. This related to the 2023 edition of the Argenta Classic, where Siniska only had four riders, one short of the stipulated minimum of five, and they decided to circumvent that rule by disguising a team mechanic, Moira Barrett, as a rider, with a complete with face mask. Um, this was considered fraud by the UCI Disciplinary Commission, and the orchestrator of it all, the DS Danny Van Houter, has been banned until the 31st of December 2025. The mechanic has been suspended until September the 1st, 2024, and the four other Siniska riders were reprimanded. Team will also have to sit out next race on the UCI calendar. Chaps, what a story. Um, first of all, I'd quite like to see the mask that was used. Um, secondly, I suppose it's it's not really a laughing um, matter. Um, I was sort of quite surprised at the severity of the sanctions though um as i said the ds banned until the 31st of december 2025 it, it brought to mind i don't know if you chaps um had heard this story recently there was a kenyan runner an 800 meter runner michael saruni um who was banned for trying to evade a, 
a dope test by employing a lookalike. This was the Kenyan Commonwealth Games trials. And he sort of disappe- disappeared into a toilet stall. And, um, and the lookalike was waiting in the stall next to this. And they sort of jumped over the wall. And huh. uh, Saruni tried to escape, but it didn't work. It didn't work. Um, but what a story. Mm. Well, it's like a work of fiction. I mean, if, if you have time to waste, go on YouTube and look for a, a movie, French movie called Contre la Montre. I, I'm, I'm telling you that because I wrote the script of it. And, and it was... <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, it was. Like, well, it was a fiction thing. It was. It was like. Well, it was quite. A, it was not so bad. It was a movie that was released in two thousand and one, and 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 the whole story was uh, a guy is about to be. The, there's there's about to be a dope test in in his hotel in the morning, and they're asking for this guy Daniel Freiber, and 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 this guy Mitch Tucker goes to the to the dope test and says is Daniel Freiber, and and the problem is that the, of course the commissaires, the, then the, the race goes on, and the, the commissaires see the the that that. that there's been, you know, a, 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 a you know a switch of a swap of riders. So one rider, you know, making believe is the other one to avoid a dope test. So, but this that that was fiction. And now and, and now some you know like in real life. I mean, th- this kind of story you, you describe and w- which happened. If you if you write a script, a, a movie script, fiction about it, nobody will believe it. Do say it it, 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 it can't it can't happen. You know. Well, it did apparently. I, and as you say, I think it's in terms of sanction it's kind of counterproductive because I mean they, 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 they these guys were trying to organize a race uh, they didn't have uh, enough starters so they so so what so so there won't be another one I it's not like encouraging the race to go ahead in the future I mean I I don't know yeah, we've often wondered, haven't we, about the Yates brothers. Uh, we've often had serious <laughs> doubts about those. I was going to say boys. the exact thing. I thought, oh, I won't say it. I thought, oh, you know, for me, I feel like they look too different now. But when they first entered the peloton, um, I always joked about whether in a grand tour they could just swap out. Speaking of, you know, um, you know, in- interchanges in grand tours, they could have just done the sneaky interchange in a grand year, you know, just given the other one a week off and then come in to finish it off. I, I don't know whether I've said this, um, I've told this story on the podcast before. I think I have at one of our live events. Um, there was a period, the first couple of years when they were both riding at Orica, when it was well customary for one of them to be, if you were at a stage race, one of them was bound to be in the white jersey. And I think it was at the Vuelta one year, maybe 2016. Maybe they were both riding that year. And it was sort of Adam one day, Simon the, the next. And um, this led to great sort of confusion on my part. And one day um, I addressed the first question to one of them, I can't remember who it was. Um, I addressed it to Saddam. Um, I got in a bit of a pickle, and <laughs> um, yeah, we weren't too many years removed from the end of sort of <laughs> the Iraq War, and it was rather unfortunate. Um, Chaps, we should probably move on. Uh, the next stop is the south of France. So, Francois, you're not in the south of France; you're in Paris. You told us before we started recording. Um, however, in the south of France, there were two exciting one-day races at the weekend: the Fun Ardèche Classic and the Fun Prom Classic. Both won by UAE Team Emirates riders, the former by Juan Ayuso, the latter by Mark Hirschi. The UAE Tour had just started when we hit the airwaves last week. We were expecting a dominant performance by the home team, UAE Team Emirates, and particularly their leader, Adam Yates, the aforementioned Adam Yates. Well, we got none of those things, with Jay Vine and Brandon McNulty both faltering on the final day when one of the pair looked well-placed to take overall victory on Jabel Hafit. This after Yates had pulled out of the race with concussion following a nasty crash on stage three. 
The first six stages were won in chronological order by Tim Merlier, McNulty, that was the TT. Ben O'Connor, Merlier again, Olaf Coy and Merlier again. Going into that last stage, showdown, Vine led fellow Western Australian O'Connor by 11 seconds and teammate McNulty by 13. The American, though, blew up at the bottom of the final climb, Vine halfway up, which left O'Connor in prime position until Lotto Destiny's Leonard Van Etveld attacked in the final two kilometers and soloed both the stage win and the overall title by an agonizing two-second margin over O'Connor, who took second and 11 seconds from Peyot. Bilbao. Um, just a quick word on this, chaps. At the time of writing, I think as we watched the stage, we all imagined there was something wrong with those two UAE riders and that they were sick, McNulty and Vine. Just listening to or reading their comments afterwards, it sounds as though it was more a case of the first part of the stage having been very hard. Um, there were crosswinds and it was tough racing into the bottom of Jebel feet and they seem to be sort of paying the price for that um also ben o'connor um, mitch you, mm. well he was a bit of a sitting duck um to use the expression that francois used earlier i think um and i suppose he was kind of having to well his team his decathlon as you do on the mondial team were, were having to sort of not make it up as they went along but they were in a situation they didn't expect to be in i don't know whether he was able to keep track of exactly where everyone was on gc because there were several riders in contention at that point he couldn't follow every move um but he was sort of the de facto team lead no one else was going to chase anyone um even though he had a slender um advantage Look, I think it was really good, you know, the days before when, you know, they 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 applied that team attack almost, you know, you call it, um, which you don't really see anymore, you know, where him and his teammate went off the front to launch him for that victory. Um, it was it's quite good. And, and I like where Ben O'Connor's going this year and taking that sort of, I guess, pressure off his shoulders um, announcing not going to the tour. I don't know whether that was a team decision, his decision officially. Um, it seems that he is racing with a bit more freedom. He stayed in Europe all year this year, um, didn't come back to Australia. I was disappointed because I wanted to get him on the pod um, and I couldn't get him. But, um, you know, I couldn't get him live, that is. So, look, I think it's it's nice. And he's showing early season. I'm not really answering your question, but I'm just talking on a holistic sort of view of the way I'm seeing Ben Wright. Um, it looks like I remember catching up with him last year at the tour as he crossed the line and he was a broken man. Um, can't remember what stage it was, but he, he'd lost that GC and he was just he, – he looked like he was just lost. And it was a split-second – thing that I noticed in him and I know it was after the race and the emotions but I'm seeing a different guy this year and I think we're going to see a new Ben O'Connor hit the season this year. In terms of relieving the pressure that I think he's sort of laboured under for the last couple of years Mitch getting two early big results the winning Murcia and UAE that's going to be great for his season isn't it because he's not a rider who you know his team are going to expect to win 10 races a year um, so it's already it's already a good season, a good 2024 season. And um, yeah, yeah here we I, and also I, th I think you right, you raced perfectly on the last stage of the UAE Tour. It didn't, it didn't jump, jump. He knew at that stage, you know, at, at in the finale that he was the, the, the potential, uh, you know, tour winner. 
but he, he didn't jump after every move. You know, he, he, he paced himself, he, he came back and he did exactly what should be done. But just this mm. young, you know, Belgian guy j just, just, well, just made launch a brilliant attack and it was very unexpected and, and, and it was just the best man on the day. But, but, but I, I don't think, you know, Ben O'Connor has anything to, to be ashamed of. I mean, he, he really did the job the way he should, he should do it. I think he, he, he ran, he, I mean, he's been in great shape since the start of the season. He, he controlled every, every move and everything. Only, you know, you've got all, you've always got this young, up and coming guys, as we know, coming up, and this is another one, you know, who really boldly went for it and 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 got the win, which is uh, it, it's it's nice to see such, such exciting finales when all of the sudden the strat the strategy, because as you say, we have Visma, Visma, bike and we have UAE Emirates. We have the the impression that those two teams are going to crush, you know, the season and. Well, th this showed that, you know, from time to time, the unexpected can happen. And that's when you've got fireworks, when anything can happen. And that's what that, that's what a great last 10K is to watch, actually. Great. And, uh, and I think, oh, sorry. I th sorry to interrupt, I think that's exactly a great point, what you said there, is that these races are very hard to predict what they mean for the season. Not to take anything away from Ben O'Connor, but these surprise results are great races for young guys to try their legs out. They're all about data because you can move around the peloton. You can easily get to the front. I'm not discounting how hard they are because, you know, not that I was over there winning every race. But get them in a, you know, the races coming up at Basque Country, Catalonia, and we see the cream rise to the top because there's, there's a bit more involved. So it is a hard one to read, um, but I agree with you, Francois. It, it, he rode really well in that circumstance. Francois, it would have been the first French team victory yeah. in a in a World Tour stage yeah. race since Carlos Betancourt. Yeah. Since I was, about to, I was about to ask you, since yeah. the, since the Colombian since the Colombian Rick Bossut won won Paris. Yeah, and you and you could almost you know no disrespect to the, the AG to our team, but but I don't mind you know you know sound, sounding dis disrespectful to Carlos Betancourt, but you could almost rule out that win as well, you know, <laughs> for various reasons. So yeah, it's been a long time. It's been a long time, really. On that controversial note, we'll move on. <laughs> and we talked last week about El Gran Camino, a sort of unofficial tour of the Spanish region of Galicia, where Jonas Vingegaard was beginning his 2024 campaign. Well, force majeure, race cancellations or alterations are becoming a bit of a theme. Spanish races this year, this one was no different. High winds prompting race jury to rule in advance. The opening day TT had to be ridden on normal bikes and the results wouldn't count for GC. One suspects the winner would have been the same either way. And Josh Tarling did indeed take the stage. Thereafter, it was the Vingegaard show with the raining, raining being the operative word, dropping everyone on each of the three remaining stages. Um, that gave him overall victory by 1 minute 55 seconds over Lenny Martinez. I looked this up, chaps. Greater than the winning margin in five of the last nine Tours de France after three stages. Um, third was the winner of one of those tours, the 2019 edition, Egan Bernal, a resurgent Egan Bernal. That was very good to see him looking in such good form and promises very well for the rest of the year. And we had a nice letter after last week's episode in which we talked about the eucalyptus trees and local festivals in Galicia. Chaps from a, a listener called Lewis James, who's a Cornishman who has settled in... Um, 
in Galicia. We talked last week, as I said, about the eucalyptus controversy. Um, Lewis James was very much of the view that the eucalyptus plantations are a blight on the Galician landscape, um, mainly because of the, well, the biodiversity argument. Um, we didn't see many uh, eucalyptus trees. We didn't see much of anything. It wasn't a particularly good advert for the beautiful region of Galicia because the weather was so wretched. Um, it did make me wonder, I had this conversation with someone yesterday, chaps, um, why Vingegaard has elected last couple of years to start his season in Ogran Camino. Um, it's a hilly race, which he likes, obviously, and he's he's won there um, on both occasions, but I'm not really sure why the choice has fallen on that particular race. It's kind of curious, but it's word for it. Mm. The funny thing uh, right. is, is you, mm. you, you could tell about the change of uh, season because we have a new name for the team, Visma Lisa Pike, and we have a new name for Jonas Vingegaard as well, who is now Jonas Vingegaard Hansen. He took the name of yes. his, uh, he added the name of his wife to his, uh, to his you know, full name, which was, uh, uh, you know, for a second I, I asked myself, who is this man? You know, Jonas Hansen riding, riding for Visma Lisa Pike. But, <laughs> you know, it's different name, same rider, I'm afraid. <laughs> It's it's a pretty dominant performance there by him. Um, and I wonder from a physiological point of view how that build goes towards the Tour de France and why there is such a necessity to dominate so heavily there, to go on that attack so far out solo um, and win by so much in the yellow jersey going solo and just to completely obliviate the field like – I know it's uh, like I'm not saying he should, you know, make it even and all this sort of stuff, but I'm like, does the form need to be that good now, or is he just still in a building phase? You know, is this just the level that he's at? But or is that everyone just like so much less? It just looked like he was already in Tour de France form, you know, um, because it's so early. Does he completely shut it down now and rebuild? How does it go from here? Because clearly he well, he obviously won the Tour with the same same condition last year. Remember last year he started this. Well, he almost never lost a race. I mean, so it's it's kind of the way Vingegaard seems to be riding. And also, it was interesting, as you mentioned, Daniel, to see well Lenny Martinez do you know the, the up and coming Frenchman in second place behind uh, Vingegaard, and and probably even more to see Egan Bernal back. Uh, on a on a podium, uh, so these are early season indications that you know of what to expect. Maybe it, it would be great to see Bernal, you know, uh, back in the, to his best level, and at the same time, while well, Lenny Martinez and Romain Grégoire in the in the one of the two uh, you know French races you mentioned, Daniel, who finished second behind Juan Ayuso. So it is up and coming the Group FDJ team, uh, you know, well showing you know that they might be ready for more. So yeah, it's a it's a really. It was an exciting week for um, predictions, or you know, f forecasts, or looking mm. forward to to the rest of the season for that reason. I mean, it's just on that the the, the sort of well, the, the big hitters, the the Galacticos, starting their seasons in such barnstorming form. Modern GC riders just have no chill, do they? Um, you know, we're going to talk about. Well, we'll talk about some more Visma Lisa bike riders later in the episode who've come straight down from altitude and are competitive immediately. And that didn't used to be the case. I mean, anyone familiar with cycling, um, particularly stage race cycling in the early part of this century? I mean, if you'd 
told someone that, I don't know, a Jan Ulrich, for example, mm. was going to come and start winning Spanish stage races in February or March. Um, I mean, Jan Ulrich's main objective in sort of Spanish stage races in February and March was trying to sort of duck under the 100 kilogram um, <laughs> bar. Um, and that remained, that was pretty much his priority for the next three or four months. Um, anyway, chaps, last stage race we'll tell you about is Tour of Rwanda, which we've been keeping on over the last couple of weeks just going to give you the winner of the race overall uh, on gc that was the 21 year old british rider joseph blackmore representing israel premier tech mitch one reason we've covered this race over the last couple of weeks is that it was the last pro road race for someone you know well and featured on your pod skabu gamai um who was riding for the world cycling center um for a sort of uh, kind of farewell race um sad to see skabu leave the pro road peloton isn't it mitch yeah i i wasn't aware of that actually um daniel um i'm wondering how we actually rode back for is it the uci world cycling center is that right yes um so that was where he sort of started his journey way back i think in 2010 and he sort of well he, he talked to them about the possibility of kind of coming full circle in his career and he's going to be doing some work for them anyway i believe some sort of mentoring work and he thought it'd be a nice way to sign off. He's also going to be riding some gravel races for the Amani team um, in the Girona area mainly. I think there are a lot of gravel races, sort of local gravel races around there, Mitch. And he's going to try his hand at that. I don't know if this is 100% sure, but I think Sagabu took my house when I left Girona. Um, <laughs> oh, so it's a God. bit of an odd fact for everyone. So um, he came around when we did the pod. And we interviewed at my house. He said, this is a great house. He's looking around. He's very intrigued. Um, and then when I left, I, I did hear this rumor that he moved in with his family. So I hope that is true. And the house went to good hands because he is a seriously good guy. A couple of other things, um, chaps. Peter Sagan is recovering from a heart operation after his heart rate soared to over 200 beats per minute in a recent race. And a minor abnormality was diagnosed in follow-up tests. Sagan underwent a corrective ablation procedure and plans to be back in action at the Marseille France Cup race on the 17th or 18th of March, uh, Francois. Mm. Um, well, I might, I might go. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure what the sort of prevailing feeling is in mountain biking on the mountain bike scene about how successful Sagan's going to be this year. But obviously, we wish him all the best with his recovery um, from that heart procedure. Um, doesn't seem to be too much alarm about it, which is good news. Um, and finally, chaps, reports have come out of Italy in the past few hours suggesting that RCS own Giro di Sicilia, the Tour of Sicily, will not go ahead in April. Um, it will be replaced by the Giro d'Abruzzo. Um, that is a race with its own long, though quite stuttering history, founded in 1961 and dormant since 2007. That will take place between the 9th and the 12th of April, we believe. Shoot, shoot at l'arrière du peloton, cycling podcast team car, the back of the pack, please. That's Seb PK, the voice of Radio Tour, to remind me to tell you that this episode is sponsored by AG1. It's Lionel here, and over the past few weeks, I've got into the habit of drinking AG1 every morning. It's pretty much the first thing I do on coming downstairs now, and it gets my day off to a great start. AG1 is a nutritional supplement pack with over 70 high-quality ingredients. Now, as a sports podcast, no doubt we will have lots of you out there who compete in events, whether cycling or other sports, that are covered by anti-doping regulations. And so the first and probably most important thing to mention is that AG1 is produced according to the strictest manufacturing standards. 
AG1 is NSF certified for sport. And that means that the manufacturing process involves exhaustive testing and verification to ensure that every serving of AG1 is exactly what you see on the label. And it gives you the peace of mind and reassurance that it's been tested for heavy metals, contaminants and over 280 banned substances. Now, in a pretty quick period of time, I found that AG1 is a really simple and effective supplement and it gives a large range of vitamins, minerals and nutrients that are sourced from whole foods in an easy to mix powder. You just take one scoop of the powder, mix it in one glass of water, give it a good shake up and it's going to give you everything your body needs, but which can be quite difficult to get from food alone. I used to take a range of vitamin and mineral tablets, um, uh, vitamin d and a multivitamin that kind of thing and i found that ag1 is a lot more enjoyable to drink than swallowing a load of pills and as a result it's quickly become part of my morning routine i don't skip it i don't forget i just have my glass of ag1 before heading out of the door and i found that it's made my selection of breakfast a little bit later on in the morning just that little bit more mindful so it's got me off to a good start in the mornings, I'm drinking my AG1, starting my day with that instead of with a cup of coffee or tea, which suits me down to the ground because everyone knows I prefer to leave my first cappuccino of the day until after 11am anyway. So if you want to take ownership of your health, try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash cycling. That's drinkag1.com slash cycling. Check it out now. We'll put the details in the show notes. Well, chaps, we have already told listeners, um, if they didn't already know, who won Het Newsblad. I'm Het Newsblad at the weekend. Who won Kurna Brussels? Kuna, um, Jan Trapnik, the Slovenian rider of um, Visma Lisa Bike. He ended up beating Niels Pollitt in a sprint and well for a long time it looked pretty certain well pretty much in fact after the provisional start lists were released it looked pretty certain that a Jumbo Visma formerly Jumbo Visma and um, Visma Lisa bike rider would win Omloop Het Newsblad because they fielded one of the well I think the strongest teams ever fielded in that event so they were very much the favorites also based on what they achieved last year the way the race panned out chaps now uh, it was an aggressive start um all sorts of splits in the first couple of hours when we couldn't see the race um it wasn't on tv at that point and um, when the cameras were finally sort of switched on or we could see them um there was a, a large and significant i think it was a 23 man break um as we got towards the pointy end of the race mitch and you can talk um about this in a moment uh, about exactly where the pointy pointy end of omloop starts um there's 23 man group and a lot of good riders in there i think um visma lisa bike had four ineos had four as as well and um as they got to the Wolvenberg, 52 kilometers to go, Matteo Jorgensen led onto there. And, well, a group was able to detach itself, and a very good group it was, too. Jorgensen, Delee, mm. Pidcock, Screens, um, Gianni Moscon, briefly, Van Art, and Laporte. Um, and they stayed together. Um, those seven riders, or with the exception of Moscon, who um, got dropped, as I said, shortly after the split occurred. And then 
Visma Lisa bike. Well, before we started recording, Mitch, I suggested that it maybe looked as though, and this is sort of the narrative. And what's going to be the narrative of this classic season, season taking over? And um, this idea that maybe um, Visma Lisa bike are in danger of becoming complacent. It almost looked as though they had started to think about who was going to win and mm. not necessarily whether they were going to win. Um, they fired Jorgensen down the road before the, the Moor van Herausbergen. He led on to the Moor van Herausbergen. And then to, to everyone's surprise, really, because we'd sort of written off the peloton. Um, at one point, they were well over a minute back um, from that seven-man group. The peloton sort of appeared um, over their shoulder. Um, Tim Wellens really um, appeared over their shoulder and in his slipstream came the whole peloton. Didn't quite all come back together over the move on Herzberg. And in, indeed, Jorgensen was still away on his own at the bottom of the Bosberg. But then um, it really did regroup and it looked as though Visma Lisa Bike had squandered the advantage that they had had. And that wasn't what's in fact materialized because they were still able to, I suppose some people will say rescue victory from the jaws of defeat um, in that Jan Tratnik was able to get away with Niels Pollitt. On paper, Tratnik not not known as a fast rider, a fast finisher. Um, Pollitt on occasions has won small bunch sprints, um, small group sprints. We feared for um, Visma Lee Spike at that point, but Tratnik had simply more power in the closing meters and was able to take an easy, well, comfortable-ish um, win in, in that sprint. So Mitch, um, mm. let's start to pick this apart, what you um, were able to, to sort of see and decipher of a, a, a classic edition of a, a classic race. Um, there was there were so many sort of different phases of the race. As I said, there were there were moments when we were absolutely sure that the race was done and dusted, that those seven riders were going to contest the win, and it looked as though it was all set up for a, a, a kind of routine Wout van Aert victory or a Christophe Laporte victory, as much as a victory in a race like this can ever be um, can ever be routine. But shortly thereafter um, it was all looking very very uncertain again well in the old worlds my old old words of my old teammate Matt Heyman as with the classics is just keep riding um, and an interview after the race from Jan Traknik was exactly that and maybe that's what it worked out he was dropped in the crosswinds um, not dropped he got distance because he's in a bad position so he said and maybe that relieved him a lot of duties. He was then playing the policing role behind because that group got away with three, um, I was going to say Visma, Lisa Bike, you know, Yumbo riders in the front. So he was then playing the policing role behind, you know, how do we keep these guys away, had a bit of a softer ride than if he was in the front of the bunch um, having to play a different role. He then came back, as we saw, and maybe just had that little bit of spark left in his legs to launch that attack, which he wouldn't have had if the race had gone another way, um, you know, pulling, setting it up like Jorgensen. And I would almost say like Matteo Jorgensen now being in a team where he's actually having to do a job in the classics and not being a leader has allowed him to be a better rider in the classics, if that makes sense. If he was in, and I use this um, Cortina, Ivan Garcia Cortina example in Movistar, 
if he moves to a team where he has to be our worker, has to be in the position to work for other riders that are better, he's going to ride a better classics race opposed to trying to ride for himself, if that makes sense. There's this pressure. Chavanel, Chavanel, who Francois talked about earlier, was a great example Mm -hmm. of that. Exactly, you know, like these these guys, they get in a position, they're doing the job, they're not thinking about, oh, I should save energy here. They're just committing to the job. Next thing they know, they're in a group of six over the top of, you know, the Wolfenberg. Um, to speak about the race itself, when I raced it, there's two similar two things that I remember from Omelhead Newsblad in the in the later editions was the Molenberg was a key point. There was a race into the Molenberg, get on that left turn. You cut up the inside. It was my job was to get the, the leaders into the Molenberg. That was my job, day done. Molenberg was the end of the race now. You know, it was it was done and dusted. So that just seemed like a, a nothing climb now. And what the similarities I'm seeing with Yumbo um, is the quick step of the old. Who can attack first gets to win. If you remember this with quick step, I heard this rumor was they were just like, if they were four or five in the front group or three or four, whatever, whoever gets to attack means the other guys can't chase him, so he gets to win. Terpstra would go early. You'd see um, you'd see Stein Vandenberg go. Boonen would probably wait as well. Then you also had Gilbert. He would go. They'd go on these long-range attacks because they thought, if I don't attack now and my teammate attacks, I have to sit here and protect him. So maybe we're going to see this with Yumbo, as we saw with with Jorgensen going and these guys are like, well, if I don't attack now, I'm just going to have to, I'm going to have to watch my teammate right away and get the victory. That's the sort of similarities I'm seeing with Yumbo and Quickstep of, of the old when I used to race was, you know, I was watching it on TV, not that I was there witnessing those attacks, but um, I would see that and I think it was funny. They're just sitting there going, damn it, I can't chase my own teammate. We're going to watch my teammate right away and win. Yes, we're happy, but I had the legs to win today. So that's a weird sort of, conundrum these guys are going to get into when you were sort of saying are they complacent are they sort of waiting around you know we can choose who wins i think maybe that's the scenario they're going in is going well i want to win today but so-and-so's up the road you know well how am i going to win i can't chase him down it's a bit I, of a must, weird conundrum yeah i must admit that's one of the things and in, in this sort of burgeoning empire that they're building that's one of the things that's impressed me the most i know we had this the situation at the vuelta last year which eventually well it, it led to roglic leading um, leaving the team um but they've managed to keep things pretty harmonious thus far um particularly when you consider well but harmonious at least as far as we on the outside looking in are concerned there, ha- there haven't been too many sort of wrinkles that have appeared um the, too much sort of tension that has bubbled over there not that we're aware of anyway Probably well, because if you see if you see the results of the weekend, you, you've got Tratnik wins one day, Jorgensen was up front, then the next day Wout van Aert wins, and and Laporte is always in the mix. Well, he didn't ride uh, current uh, Laporte, but so everybody's happy in a way. And and maybe the, the tactics you described, uh, Mitch, about the old days, regardless of the result, it's always best to attack because uh, as we saw with Jorgensen, if if your guy doesn't go all the way, you don't have to chase him, which means that. If he's caught by the other guys, then you can counterattack and you haven't done any work and you're fresher at the finish. So it's always, that's what happened, you know. Uh, Tratnik, as you said, managed to, to come back when it was kind of a lull uh, uh, at the back. And, and, and then he didn't have to do any, any yeah, chasing job or t- teammate job. And, and, and so 
it was much easier for him. Whereas Nils Polit was one of the guys who did the, mm. the you know most of most of the work to get back on the, uh, Jorgensen, and then he was you know he was he was finished you know in the end. So this tact when you've got a strong uh, feel like uh, Visma Lisabai have it's. It, well, obviously, because they showed it uh, at the weekend, it's best to send a guy up front. You know, either he goes all the way, or you've got a second chance, or a third chance, or even a fourth chance. You know, and that's ma- that's what makes them strong. I think also it's also really smart when we're talking about these guys being happy about the races they have. And you mentioned that Laporte wasn't at Kerner. I've seen that he's on the start list, and I think one of the favourites for Strada Bianchi. You know, maybe they just give them the different goals and it'd be a smart way of going, look, that's yours. You know, that that's your race today. That's your race next week. And you've got the team role today. So they're completely happy to play that role. Of course, Jan Tracknick, when you when you get dealt that hand, you you roll with it, but you're not sitting there going, oh, geez, well, when when's my turn going to come? Because, you know, Van Aert's winning every other race. They've sort of separated them around a bit as much as they can, I guess. Um, and then when it comes to the monuments, you've got to go with the best cards. So maybe that's the tactic and it'd be a smart tactic to play it that way, to spread it out and have different leaders at different races. Mm. There are there are two points I, I wanted to make. You mentioned Tim Wellens earlier in the in the episode. Uh, uh, is is one of the riders I I really love. I think he's a great he's, he's a great rider as such, uh, very versatile and also a great guy. I mean, uh, every journalist who's interviewed Tim Wellens in one of the uh, at least three languages he, he speaks because he speaks perfect French, great English, and of course uh, you know Dutch, and and. And I'm I'm always sorry for Tim Wellens because as we saw in Kuren, is is a he was the probably the strongest guy that day, well with Van Aert of course, but he he doesn't sprint too well. He's not a, a sensational climber, and he's that type of rider is so good, but. You know, it it would take uh, very special circumstances for him to win something huge. You know, and I'm always sorry for him because he's so good, so uh, such an, an all rounder with class, and and yet it's difficult for him to uh, to win the the, the monuments. And uh, yeah, I, I wanted just to pay homage to to Tim Wellens because I and uh, as you you might know it. it, it he might not be that famous, you know, for outside of Belgium because he, he, he usually has problems in July with, uh, you know, with um, allergies. And uh, and remember in the Tour de France, he refused to take corticoids to, to, to cure himself. So that's that's another thing I wanted to say about Tim Wellens. Great guy, uh, you know, refuses to take even AUTs, uh, TEUs. And uh, so, and well, that's, that was one point I wanted to make. The, the second question I wanted to ask you guys, uh, or, or because I asked it myself, but when we were at these early uh, races, that the the, the 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 question of preparation comes into mind. You, you, you mentioned altitude, but we saw Tom Pitcock, who is back from uh, doing the mountain bike and cyclocross. How the fact that you've been at altitude doing cyclocross or mountain bike, how does it affect uh, the approach to the um, to the the big ones? Well- also, before Mitch answers, also bearing in mind that Van Aert, no sooner had he won Kuna than he told us he was going to, well, he's missing Strade Bianche and he's going to do another block of altitude now before what he considers to be the sort of real cobble classic start. 
I would love what, to know what they're doing up there because they are nailing it. And we've seen it in the past with teams like, you know, the old Sky. They used to go up there. It was working for the Grand Tours. Let's take the Classics team up there. And I remember it just didn't work. I remember speaking to those guys. They're like, we're just missing something. We're just pedaling too slow. We've been riding on mountains the whole time. And like you said, in my mind, the perfect preparation for the opening weekend is mountain biking, is cyclocross, that fast twitch fiber, that fitness you need coming in with a bit of racing under the belt. Clearly not. Yumbo Visma have worked out the way to master both. You get the fitness from altitude, that overall fitness, but in my opinion and my old feelings from altitude, you lack the punch, you lack the snappiness, that pedal stroke you only get from racing. So whether they're up there, I don't know this, and maybe I need to do a little bit of research and speak to some guys about what they do up there, is whether it's motor pacing, whether it's the type of training they're doing, or whether they're just fluctuating between the heights and training training low, sleeping high. I don't know what it is. I'm sure they've worked it out and they're nailing it. It's clear because they're dropping down straight into the hardest racing, the most demanding of races. You know, it's a, a stage race. You can get away with a bit of altitude, but these races, you have got to be race fit. That has been a bit of a theme over the last couple of years I've mentioned, Mitch. It used to be a common and pretty frequent to hear riders in interviews or team managers, coaches, talking about how they'd got the altitude block wrong or how they'd misjudged something and how you know they'd come down and not been on the form that they expected. I'm hearing that a lot less now. I, uh, mm. My impression is that the the knowledge on that has become a lot more refined and people know exactly what to do. Also, you know, riders living at the wrong altitude, for example. I mean, there's been this trend over the last few years, you know, people go and live in Andorra, some of them for, you know, there are tax advantages as well, but some of them have bought houses. We heard last year from James Knox on the podcast, he'd bought a house, I think at 2000 meters altitude and sort of reflected that it's probably a little bit too high. Um, we also heard Tobias Foss, a couple of, um, years ago he was spending all of his time in andorra and was struggling with the altitude at 1600 meters or whatever but it, it seems to me as though well i'm, I'm sure this is the case that, that the understanding is really improving about exactly how altitudes affecting performance i i i probably gonna go against what you said with not in the exact same way but what i was trying to say is i think everyone's going to altitude a hell of a lot more and old pros will just say the exact same thing as me. When I started back in the day, you know, it was like one altitude camp a year. If you had enough money, you'd go up there and do it. And so that effect, there was this whole acclimatization to it and this whole period afterwards you had to get used to coming back down again and all this sort of crap. Towards the end of my season, I just pop up and down, you know, I do little five-day blocks, two days off. So I was just always sort of used to it. There was no coming down and acclimatization. These guys have gone to the next level. I speak to these guys. They're at altitude, I don't know how many times a year, a ridiculous amount of times a year. So I don't think the effect of coming up and down is an effect at all. So I think they're getting the continuous, whether they're down, they're in, they're intense, and whether when they're up, they're training high, they're doing their efforts up high. Their power isn't dropping down. So when they're training up high, we used to drop our power because you know the effect of the the oxygen and on on your power. Now I'm assuming they're training at the same wattage when they're up high. So that effect, I can only imagine that to go sort of against what you're saying, guys living up there all the time and having that effect. I think they're just up there so often, all these pros now, that it, it's just something that they're used to all the time, tense, altitude and everything. We will actually just pause um, to well, talk to or hear from 
uh, rider who we know because he told us last week did not train altitude before Omloop, but he, he was doing warm weather training. He was on Gran Canaria. I'm talking about the British road race champion Fred Wright and Bahrain victorious rider who went into opening weekend with pretty high hopes. And, well, Fred unfortunately didn't finish Omloop Het News, but he was 21st in Kurna, Brussels, Kurna. And, well, he did just send us a little dispatch after opening weekend to tell us exactly how his weekend had gone so here's fred wright well i went in to opening weekend with a lot of positivity but i've we've sort of came away pretty disappointed i think the uh yeah saturday on loop just missed that first split unfortunately but you know stayed calm stayed knew that you know the race still still was potentially going to come back together, which it, it did in the end. But uh, no, I had to have a have a bike change at a pretty bad time. And then uh, also got caught behind a crash. I changed the bike, was going to get back and it was looking okay. Obviously, it takes a bit of energy out of the legs and then came back to the bunch, but the, the road was blocked because there'd been a crash. So then was chasing again. And, and that was that was basically race over for me. Just finished finishing the last group but uh yeah sunday was a lot better though i was i was happy with how i was feeling on sunday just uh yeah when wow wow opened the gas on the the cobble climb i really the legs really exploded when the when the uh yeah the race race winning move went with still like 80k to go and then yeah me and mate mate found ourselves in a, a decent select group but uh we you know wanted to end up fighting for a bit of a result but the the bunch caught us and then Mateus who we were going to lead who I was trying to lead out crashed on the last corner so yeah <laughs> it was an opening weekend to i wouldn't say forget you know you got to reflect on you know what went wrong what we what we also did well like sunday we i thought we raced really well just didn't get any reward for it but that's that's the sport saturday yeah i was pretty disappointed but sunday was sort of confirmation that i'm in the right place so in the right place but with nothing nothing to show for it but oh well that's that's bike racing sometimes mitch just thinking about the the teammates and the well the the, the strength in numbers that um Visma Lisa bike have and we're all sort of well wax waxing lyrical about at the moment um at the Tour de France last year something struck me uh, something very sort of practical and unromantic something that wasn't really getting mentioned about having lots of teammates and having a st- strength in numbers um cooling and um well hydration but particularly sort of um cooling in the very very hot weather this has become a bit of a theme over the last couple of years and riders talk about it more and more and just the, the number of times when sort of adam yates was pouring water over tade pogacar and the both riders mentioned this and other riders in that team talked about how important what an important role that had been it just made me think are there <laughs> are the sort of practical again unromantic seemingly what we might think would be trivial reasons why it's important in the classics to have a lot of teammates in a group that aren't to do with you know 
being able to fire lots of guys down the road or being able to sort of, you know, lead a train, just simply practical things. Well, look, it's quite hard to get bottles in a classic um, and get food. You know, look, even this is a ridiculous thing, but you can get so cold in a classics race that you can't get stuff out of your pockets. Um, and it comes to a point where you just keep pushing on. I can't get it out. I can't get it out. And it can sometimes take a teammate to go, hey, can you get the gel out of my pocket? It's just the angle of someone being able to reach out of your pocket, hand you a gel, or even just they've got a feedback. They can grab you, give you a gel. Um, the obvious tactical side is great to have numbers there to you know launch guys up the road or, you know, in my case, chase back on to you know, Gruppetto if I can, um, or even find your way back to the bus, you know, if you've got someone's got a Garmin when you're dropped. But, um, you know, carrying carrying gear, um, you know, it, gone in the days, the glory days where you used to be able to just sort of hand off a jacket to the crowd and feel like a, a rock star. You've got to try and hang on to your, your rain jackets and stuff now. You weren't getting as much kit um, towards the end of my career. But, yeah, it's, it's very handy to have those guys, especially if you've got guys who know the roads, that's probably the biggest element. And I used to lean on guys, and I mean this with definitely no disrespect, they weren't necessarily massive champions, um, but they lived in Belgium. They were Belgians who would give me the tips. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Just wait here. Don't have a piss now because we're going to go up here. The road's going to open up. It's definitely going to be crosswind here. And you're like, how could it be crosswind here? The, right, the wind's coming from front. And then you're like, no, no, no. And then you'd be like, oh, right, perfect. I'll have a piss here. Or let's move up on this next bit. Those little bits about general knowledge about knowing, like if I was to race around the town where I'm living now, the amount of stuff I would know if you guys rocked up here and raced tomorrow, I'd be like, no, 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 don't move up now. Let's wait still till the Mitch, road rises. Still, Mitch, because I've, I've heard riders suggesting the emphasis has gone off this slightly because they do spend hours at home or they're supposed to um, I, spend hour, hours at home researching routes. I mean, um, Jan Tratnik, for example, he gave an interview with a Spanish website, uh, Relevo, last week to one of our colleagues, Fran Reyes. And I think it was to Fran. Um, and he talked about briefings. And we've, we've talked about this before on the podcast, how briefings now, um, a standard briefing before a stage, before a race, is 45 minutes, 50 minutes. Mm. And they go over every manhole cover pretty much. Um, so is it is it not a bit less important than it was once to have that sort of field-specific knowledge? For sure, less important, but we're talking about the minute sort of differences. And I heard Fred last week, I was quite impressed with his knowledge of the climbs and the names of the climbs. Um, less impressed with, say, Matteo Jorgensen in an interview after the race, not knowing the climb he was even attacking on. So um, a guy like Fred's got the interest and you'll get specific people who have the interest. I had the interest. I went up and lived up there. I wanted to know the climbs you know, blah, blah, blah. Yet some guys just, they're really good and they just like, cool, I don't know what that was, is one of those things. So those guys can learn a lot more. Look, I think like anyone who says they race in their own country, there's a, there's a home ground advantage. There definitely is a home ground advantage. You're never going to get that from those meetings. You'll get a hell of a lot more than we used to, but you're still not never going to get that. You're never going to know coming into the Eichenberg, you see the red door from 100 metres away. As soon as I see the red door, I've got to move up. That's the thing that everyone knows who cares about that. If you don't see the red door, it's not time to move up. Going to the Eichenberg looks the same every corner you're coming around. As soon as you see the red door, it's time. You've got that one move to go. So, look, I'm talking about guys who are at my sort of level who need those every advantages. If you're a superstar, you can sort of move around. But that could be the difference between winning and losing. 
just on Jan Tratnik, um, worth mentioning as well that this is a rider, well, whose story is is pretty inspirational or would be inspirational for, I suppose, any kind of journeyman professional um, who never sees themselves, can't envisage themselves ever winning a classic like Omelette Pet Newsblad. Um, Tratnik started his pro career in a way that a lot of riders would love to start their pro career. In 2011, he rode for Quick Step and had a single year with them, didn't go particularly well. And then he sort of bounced around minor teams, spent five years mainly in Austrian continental division teams, um, then went to the CCC Polish Pro Conti team before arriving at Bahrain Merida in 2019. And since then, well, he, he's only really gone in one direction, and that is upwards um, he's 34 years old in that same interview i mentioned with relevo he talked about riding until he's about um 40 he he thinks he hopes uh, uh an incredibly versatile rider he sort of confounds all usual sort of attempts to categorize riders he's not really a climber not really a a time trialist and um, he can do a bit of everything um it, it was interesting talking after omelette pet newsblad about those sort of five or six years in the wilderness so to speak riding for minor teams and exactly why he hadn't made his breakthrough sooner and he he sort of opened up about the problems he'd have with weight and eating disorders and they had really blighted him for a, a long time and obviously he's now conquered that um and is thriving at Visma, Lisa Bike. Um, chaps, just a word on Kuna as well on Sunday. The decisive move there, well, it went with about 90 kilometers to go. Uh, Lascano, Wellens, and Van Aert. Um, Van Aert, it's another, it's another semi classic added his collection. Um, he talked after that about well, how he was encouraged by his form obviously he's had to change coaches his coach his previous coach has gone with Primoz Roglic to Bora Hansgrohe he's changed a few things changed his race program not doing Strade Bianche um, which he's pretty upset about but wanted to try something different just thinking about the classic season ahead Mitch last week we talked about why no one has ever won Omelette and Tour of Flanders in the same year and this sort of period this kind of Bermuda triangle between these six-week period between the two and um, is that the main reason is six weeks just a it's it's just too long to sustain the same kind of form um, we'll have other riders at Paris-Nice this week and you know I've heard riders at Paris-Nice in the last few years talk about how that race has ruined their form it's they've gone too deep um, there have been other years when I've heard that you know Tirreno hasn't been hard enough and that's ruined people's form <laughs> Just talk to us a bit about about this period now, which well, starts. Well, it's 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 so funny the Tirreno, the Perinese as for a classic rider. I can only talk from the classic rider preparation and view. Is that uh, they're two different races, they're two different beasts. And I was always I hated Perinese, but I always knew it was the best race for me to do the classics because it felt like the classics were a step down. If that makes sense. Paris-Nice is so stressful and so hard that suddenly you went back. Opening weekend is like a real rude awakening. You're like, 
oh, I'm back in the classics. This sucks. Everyone is fighting for every inch. This is just hell. You go to Paris-Nice, it goes up another notch. You're like, what is this? Why am I even a cyclist? I hate this. And you go back to E3 or even get Wavelcom. And look, they're still very stressful races, but it feels like, oh, I can sort of handle this. And I, I sort of like that. Whether it was the form, whether it was the stress, I think Paris-Nice was a better preparation for the Belgian classics. Torino was, is a race that is a slower start, yet it's got weirdly a harder final, if that makes sense. You know, Paris-Nice seems like it's just an overall amateur sort of hard race the whole day from start to finish. You're just side-by-side racing. Torino's got that feeling where you roll off the line, you know, there's a break gone, has it? Oh, I didn't even realise. Great. And then at the end, it's like, whoa, I'm dropped. So it didn't work well for me, Torino, because I would be that guy who just got dropped. So I just sort of like I didn't really do much today. Whereas Perinese suited me. It was just sort of on the edge the whole day like a classic. you got to be burning the whole day. Um, they're the two differences, and, and riders like them for different reasons. You know, some guys like to just have that slower, and I use that word very um, loosely, um, a slower start and a massive final. That's great to pre- prepare for, you know, the classics end of the race. And I think the thing that I used to know about the big riders was they come to a race like um, Paris-Nice or Torino with a little bit waiting to find that last little percentage in these races, use these races to find that last 10%. If I and the riders of my level, the domestiques of the world, if I didn't go to Paris-Nice at 100%, I wasn't really finishing Paris-Nice. And I made that mistake one year thinking, yeah, oh, yeah, I'll go there, find my last 10%. I just hung on for grim death the whole week. And I realized, okay, for me to go the extra level, I need to go to Paranese at my top level and come out. So answer your long answer to your question is these guys who are flying now, and it's a different peloton. It's very hard for me to comment about what's going on now because things have changed in since the COVID. We've discussed this a million times. Um you know, the form that I see these guys in, I just don't know how they carry that form over a massive stage race coming up next week with Strata now, Strata with a higher importance again, um, you know, the sixth monument as it's called. Um, and then into the classics, you know, Roubaix's a long way away and let alone the physical form, what about the psychological energy that these guys are spending? Every one of these races literally rinses you out psychologically. Um, by the time you get to Roubaix, I can tell you a lot of guys are thinking it's the worst feeling you can ever have on the start line of Roubaix. I can't wait to fly home tonight at the best race of the year. You want to be at the start line of Roubaix going, oh, I cannot wait to race. And then, you know, to go back again to my old friend, Matt Heyman, I think mentally that was one of his keys when he won that year. He missed that classics. He came in so mentally fresh. I, I have a, uh, another perspective that's interesting. That's the the organizer's perspective, because I, I know very well François Le Marchand, who, who is the guy who designs the course for Paris Nice, and and they're they're aware of the fact that some guys come to Paris Nice to win Paris Nice, or the GC riders have different approach to the race. Uh, that's you know different from sprinters or classic specialists and there was a time when the organizers would would think especially ASO well the the, the class we, the only classics we have is Roubaix and it's a long time away so we're going to have a, a very hard Paris-Nice uh, because we don't care about the, the, the what happens at the classics afterwards but they but they realized <laughs> that if they were 
you know, if they, they were having a, a too hard, too hard Pyrenees, they, then they, they, they might not have as many sprinters that they wanted. And also, they, 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 they have to take into account the fact that from some riders, it's a preparation for uh, uh, Milan San Remo or, uh, you know, or other classics, because if they want to attract these guys as well, they have to take this into account. So from it's funny that from an organizer's point of view, who wants to have mm. the best race possible, he also has to take into account the fact that, you know, riders have a different approach to the race and and as they want the you know the big names and uh in the race so they have to take into account the fact that you know some guys are coming to prepare for the classics right we'll we'll have a couple of stages just meant for that you know and it's uh, it's 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 interesting to see how the, the whole calendar uh, you know comes into the mix when the organ I'm sure RCS you know for Tirreno have the same approach like we you can't uh, not take into account the fact that there are you know up and coming races and that you have to adapt what you do with your race to the rest of the calendar and that's also interesting the cycling podcast for the latest news views and interviews from the world of professional cycling Lionel how the devil are you fancy you around these parts hello Daniel yes a bit out of practice am I am I doing this right <laughs> I think you are I think you are um, Lionel has been uh, opening weekend in the old cycling, the road cycling season. And it's, well, the start of our season as well, certainly as far as the friends of the cycling podcast are concerned, is it not? Yeah, it is. Uh, all of our listeners will probably be aware that uh, the friends of the podcast program, since it started in 2015, way back in 2015, it's always been a really important part of our fundraising to enable the cycling podcast to do the work that we do and that financial support directly enables us to send people off to cover the grand tours and it's especially important at times like this when we don't have a title sponsor uh, the friends of the podcast episodes have been somewhat dormant since last july daniel as you know our friends of the podcast episodes were largely based around the the Giro d'italia and the tour de france last year and we've decided that we're going to go back to our roots somewhat this year and have a little bit of a reboot and a rebrand of the Friends of the Podcast episodes. Not just a little bit of a rebrand, um, Lionel. A fantastic, wonderful, um, hopefully seismic rebrand that's going to shake the... It's going to rock the cycling media landscape. Um, Friends of the Podcast well, friend specials, Lionel, are going to cease to exist in their current form or what they were under their previous guise. Is that correct? I guess so. Yeah. In name only, really. We've kind of, we've established all these things over the years, haven't we? Friends of the podcast episodes, friends specials, kilometer zero. And well, we're just streamlining, simplifying the branding, aren't we? So friends of the podcast subscribers will get access to all of our Kilometre Zero episodes. And Kilometre Zero, which has traditionally been based on our Tour de France, Giro d'Italia and Vuelta a España coverage in the past, uh, will encompass all of those kind of special episodes. It's growing, that we've done. isn't it? It's, it's expanding growing. significantly. It's ex it is, yeah. So a Kilometre Zero could be uh, 
similar to those Grand Tour style episodes, or it could be a documentary style episode or some of the travelogue extravaganzas we've done in the past, or it could be a long form interview or an in-depth investigation. We're, we're commissioning a couple of those at the moment, aren't we? Uh, but basically, friends of the podcast will be able to listen to Kilometre Zero and Kilometre Zero will be, roughly speaking, a monthly thing. We're returning back to how we started the Friends of the Podcast episodes back in the beginning. It was conceived as an idea to release something once a month. And so from March, from next month, there will be something to listen to or watch, potentially. Is that right, Daniel? The will. We'll get onto that in just a moment. That first Friends of the Podcast Kilometer zero. I'm confusing myself now. Um, Lionel, um, don't call, don't call it a comeback, but it will be it will be featuring starring Lionel Bernie. Will it not? Yeah, yeah. Well, it was recorded last year at Milan San Remo, so spring in San Remo will be out in a couple of weeks' time in the build up to the first monument of the season. Uh, a little mini series being produced by our fantastic producer, one of our fantastic producers, Tom Wally. So the first kilometre zero of 2024 will be spring in San Remo. And then we will continue releasing episodes on a monthly basis after that. Yes. Yeah, so just to recap, uh, starting well before San Remo, Kilometre Zero will be called Kilometre Zero, not Friends of the Podcast Special. Um, then monthly will there be something every month. And then, as always, Lionel, at the Giro d'Italia, we'll be doing Kilometre Zeros. We might, we might rejig the timing of those. Previously, we have released three a week. We might some, tweak that slightly, but you're still going to get those episodes, similar content as we've always done. Uh, same at the Tour de France. And um, one thing we're adding this year, we're going to do Kilometre Zeros at the Vuelta a España as well, which we've not done regularly in the past. Plus, Lionel, we're going to be offering something else in the Friends of the Podcast, Kilometre Zero program. That's going to be Kilometre Zero Live, a series of, we think, six live events, which any friend of the podcast is going to be able to attend. First Virtually. one virtually first one before the Giro d'Italia indeed and if anyone wants to sign up as a friend of the podcast if you're not one already go to thecyclingpodcast.com and it is 25 pounds for a year's access to the friends of the podcast program and that support goes a very very long way to ensuring that we can well send you and Brian off to the Giro d'Italia in May first of all Daniel indeed on with it on with the show well, chaps, the cycling world or the focus of the cycling world moved to Belgium last week. Um, there was lots of racing going on, as we've already discussed. But Omloop Het Nieuwsblad took centre stage. Um, and, well, Belgium and its roads will take centre stage um, for a lot of this spring. And with that, well, comes... A lot of focus as well on certain teams, certain personalities. Um, Patrick Lefebvre is someone who very much occupies centre stage around about this time of year. That's pretty um, a, a pretty regular occurrence in the spring and during the classics period. And opening weekend was foregrounded by a story that garnered a lot of attention. And that was comments by Patrick Lefebvre in an interview with the Belgian magazine Humo about 
Julien Alaphilippe. Alaphilippe, who of course has been, well, he, he had been the talismanic figure of the quick step team, Sudal quick step um, for many years. His, his status in that team has sort of waned a bit over the last couple of years because Remco Avenepoel is the flavour of the month. Um, the comments from Lefebvre chaps, I'm sure the listeners um, probably all read them. Um, two sort of key statements that he made or key criticisms of uh, Julien Alaphilippe. Um, well, he talked about the mega contract that Alaphilippe had signed. Um, that was in April 2021. So between Alaphilippe's two world championships, two rainbow jerseys, um, Lefebvre said to Umo, too many parties and too many, too much alcohol. Um, and then, equally sort of controversially, he went on to mention Alaphilippe's wife. Wife? Um, yeah, yeah. Francois yeah, yeah, Murray. Yeah. Um, he said he's seriously... Now, the translation that I've seen of this, and I've seen it translated in various languages, he's seriously under Marion's spell, or he's seriously kind of under her charm. Um, I suppose there are different interpretations of that one might say that he was talking about the sort of depth of their, well, of, of Julien's affection for his wife. Um, others interpreted that as Lefebvre saying that Marion Rousse was meddling in um, Alaphilippe's career. Um, however, this sort of led to other stories. There was another one in L'Equipe, um, which was interesting, Francois, um, from your colleague Philippe Legault, talking about, well, this reputation, maybe, that Alaphilippe has gained over the last couple of years um, of being a bit of a party boy, or he had gained up until a year or so ago. Um, there was talk in Philippe Legault's piece in L'Equipe about him sort of keeping teammates up at night with his phone ringing late in the room, um, sort of boozy evenings on training camps, um, and well, this raised this raised several questions, chaps. Um, one of them, obviously, is Lefebvre's motivation for making these comments. Um, there, there are several sort of plausible explanations. None of them fully are fully convincing. You know, is he um, trying to sort of cajole, inspire, poke Julian Alaphilippe, motivate him? Is he trying to trash an asset? who is coming to the end of his contracts with that team. Can he simply not help himself? Um, does he get a kick? And this is something that I've always thought about Lefebvre. When you interview him, there's a kind of, when he delivers his sort of killer payoff line or punchline, you see the twinkle in his eye and he simply mm -hmm. gets kind of gratuitous pleasure out of knowing that he's delivered something quotable to a journalist. That's what I've always seen. Rather than, I think there isn't a calculated aspect to it. Um, but so th there's that question. What, what exactly was Lefebvre up to? Does he have any right to make these comments? Um, secondly, um, talk about someone's private life. I've even mentioned someone's wife. Um, and... And, and just m motivation in general, Mitch, as well. Um, how should a team manager, mm. a direct sportive, go about getting the best out of um, a, a rider who's maybe not performing at the level they once were? Um, 
I don't know who wants to go first. Francois, you know Junior Alaphilippe well. Um, one thing that caught my eye as well today in L'Equipe was another f team manager that you know well, Jean-René Bernardo, the Total Energy manager, talking about how he would gladly take Alaphilippe on. Um, but just in, in terms of background, Alaphilippe and um, the last couple of years and, and how his results have dipped. Obviously, he's had crashes. He's had a lot of misfortune. Um, what's your take on this, Francois? Well, the first thing, uh, his, his reputation as a party boy is probably right. But, I mean, some guys, I mean, all the riders are different. And and some guys need that, uh, you know, to get uh, rid of the pressure by, by being you know, I'm, I'm not seen by indulging into alcoholism or anything, but by partying, by taking the pressure off. Other guys uh, deal with it differently. Uh, if Julien Alaphilippe is a party boy, he, he was a party boy when he, he when he was world champion twice. I mean, it, it didn't seem to affect his results in the past. So the the, the, the simple things that uh, apparently Lefebvre refuses to admit is that you mentioned cra the crashes at the, the the season when he crashed at Liège. It was not his only crash. He crashed a number of times. Since then, he's been crashing much more than than, than in the past. Like confidence has gone. You know, when you have a big crash like this, he, he, he used to be very handy with the bike, very skillful, and he seems to have lost that. Also, he's 31 now. I mean, and and in the in the type of the type of rider he is, there are many. There, there's at least a dozen younger guys who are, who are the same type of riders uh, as, as he was and are simply younger so it, it was it was obvious even when he signed a contract in 20, uh, 2021 it was obvious uh, that you know he, he, he was taking a risk by giving so much money to to a rider who was who, obviously at would would wane and falter because he was simply uh, getting older so i think it's a little bit unfair uh, my impression i have two two ways of seeing it and I, I i agree with what you said before about the twinkle in the eye i can see patrick lefebvre saying these words like tongue-in-cheek you know like you mm. shouldn't take mm. me seriously uh, i I'm I'm, I'm 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 kidding you know but when it's in, on print, you don't see the twin, you don't see the twinkle in the eye or the the the, the joke. Yeah, you know the, the joke. The, the, and I and I, I I don't think Lefebvre is fully. And we talked about this last week. Um, we talked about a, a post that Theo Gegenhart had done on Instagram where he talked about kind of riders not being able to, not knowing how to sort of um, convey, communicate their personality. And and I talked about how social media has changed things and how riders are basically terrorised now because they've all had the experience of saying something which was either a criticism or just something they had on their mind. And then it's feeding the sort of social media machine for the next two mm, days, yeah. three days, four days. And I don't really, I, I think Lefebvre has found himself in this situation many times over the last few years where he said something and it has fed the social media monster, he would probably say. So it's not like it's his first rodeo. However, he seems to be struggling to get his head around this. Mm. The fact that you do say something now and people do strip it out of their context. And there is some context to this. Um, he he went then went on to clarify that he, he was referring he he was referring to the end of 2022 and in the interview it was as though he was talking mm, yeah. about 2023 and so there is you know there are some nuances that need to be kind of laid on top yeah. of this but, uh, but the mentions of Marion. Uh, uh, 
they're, they're awkward, they're, they're the more awkward as if you know Marion Rousse in spite of her, you know, she, she's, yeah, she's quite popular, she's quite famous, she's, she, she's you know, the, the, the boss of the uh, Tour Femina, she's a consultant for uh, several uh, networks, radios and stuff. And if, uh, uh, my impression is that if Julien is under the influence of Marion, it's 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 it's, it's a positive influence. She's she's doing she's mm. she's doing a lot of good to the guys, you know. And 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 if 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 what uh, Lefebvre wants to say is that uh, Marion Rousse and uh, their their life together and their, and their kids are more important to our priority for Julien more than his racing career, well, I think that's fine. You know, that's I think that's the way it should be, mm. so and not the other way around. So. Uh, in the end, what I think is that it's just you know it's just a way for Patrick Lefebvre to um, to admit and to put a final uh, you know mark on on their uh, uh, partnership together because obviously the contract uh, you know Ala Philippe's contract is ending at the end of the season and the question now is where is you know what is the future of, of Julien Ala Philippe in the peloton because because he also hinted I think it was in uh, Cycling News that he might retire at the end of the season so. Um, to me, what Lefebvre said, however, whatever he meant, uh, is a clear sign that uh, whatever happens, Julien would probably not be with Quickstep at the end of the season. So, uh, what is his future? Is has he had enough? Uh, I was I was talking about assaults at the start of, the, of this episode. I don't think Julien has ever been that. I don't think <laughs> Julien has ever been a, a killer or an asshole. I don't think the cycling career has, has been s such a priority. I, I don't think I don't think cycling is is hundred percent of his life. And and he didn't. And that's the he point. Didn't, he didn't. Do he didn't do himself any favors at the weekend when he had several crashes in normally had news button. One of the crashes, one of the bike changes, it was right outside a chip shop, a friteur. And um, he disappeared inside and came out with a battered sausage and a cone of chips. And I thought that <laughs> that's not true. But he was at, right outside a chip shop, which I thought was unfortunate. Also slightly unfortunate timing as far as the Suda quick step team were concerned that they did a podcast with him and that was released the morning of the Lefebvre's comments um part of a sort of effort I think to um well to get the the team sort of image back on track after the merger rumors and and all of that this um, winter but Mitch your thoughts yeah look I think that there's there's a couple of things out of that I think one thing that you to come off the back of Francois is that People have got to realise that, you know, this mysterious state of, you know, I think most listeners probably know this, but if they don't, I'm going to point it out to them, that once a team decides that they're useless um, or the rider, they've decided to get rid of the rider or they don't like the rider or whatever, that's done. That can be done a year, two years out from the end of their contract and it seems like that's what's going on here. Um, you know, people might be thinking, yeah, but he's still got, you know, a whole year ahead. It's weird how quickly teams will just write you off and just either sideline you or just, you know, badmouth you or whatever it is. And they're already just thinking about the next year. Cool, Alaphilippe's done with us. And you're thinking, you're still paying him for like a whole season. But they're like, no, nah, that's, that's, we don't care about that. So that's something to think about that that could be a possibility. Um, and look, just purely on the motivational side of things, if that's what he's going at, that is a common trait, you know, not to this extent with team managers, team sports directors to apply this negative motivation, they I'd, I'd call it that, where it's like let's put them down, 
um, and they're going to rebel, you know, sort of, I'll prove you right, you know, and, you know, come back. Because I get the feeling that a lot of sports directors and, you know, team managers even have been pros themselves, and that's the way that they got motivated by being told you can't do that, you're no good anymore, and they want to prove them wrong. So they're like, well, that sort of worked for me, so I'll apply the same pressure. It doesn't work for everyone. There is an element that, you know, I think everyone in any walk of life, sport, whatever, wants to prove someone wrong when they get that. But if you keep applying it too hard, some guys kick back. Amazingly, a guy like Michael Matthews, he was amazing at that. He could come back and just go, I will prove you wrong. It was amazing. I used to watch it happen personally myself. I loved being sort of fluffed up and told that, you know, you know, give me a bit of belief, you know, and give me a bit of confidence. You know, Mitch, I reckon I reckon you can get over that climb and, you know, lead Magnus Court out in the Vuelta. I was like, holy shit, they think I can do it. And I'd try and do it and I would do it. And if if I if I received, you know, nah, you're never gonna make it, mate. Of course I was sitting up, rolling in, taking it easy. So um they're two different, you know, tactics. And I'm talking this is on another level. This is out in the public. So what that does to him, I get the feeling that there's going to be an element of I want to prove you wrong. I want to show you something else, but it might be out of his hands. You know, sometimes it's out of your hands. Look at a race like Omelette Newsblad. He was out of his hands. He crashed. Was that because it was just you know the situation, or was it because it was fate? He was trying too hard. He was trying to prove so hard that he had to you know show the world that he was he wasn't that that he was in the wrong spot at the wrong time, forcing it too much. It's a bad dynamic to be in. Um, you don't want that from the boss, let alone anyone in your team. You want that that confidence boost. Chance, I thought we'd just conclude. Um, this is, I should really stress, this is not to suggest in any way that um, Julien Alaphilippe has been overindulging in alcohol. But the mere mention of alcohol and the sort of suggestion that it might affect someone's performances, um, I, I just thought it would be it would be worth asking you to about how cultures have changed on that score. Obviously, alcohol and cycling are, well, they, they have been um, bedfellows to a certain extent. Since day one, um, I've got some notes here. In the first Tour de France, Maurice Garin prevailed partly because his rival for overall victory, Le, uh, Léon Georget, abandoned the race from Bordeaux to Nantes, citing digestive issues caused by too many biscuits, strawberries, and a red wine called Brutal. And there are many, many, many stories going through the annals of professional cycling of wine, beer being involved. Um, Chaps, as you both know, these days, last few years, it's a well-documented phenomenon that people are drinking a bit less. Young people are drinking less. Um, Gen Z has also been sort of nicknamed Generation Sensible. Um, drinking less than any generation that's gone before them. Um, Mitch, did you see attitudes change over the years? Um, you know, maybe once upon a time, a couple of beers, um, uh, team dinners after races, that that was seen as normal and then it became frowned upon. Did you see anything change? I don't think, yeah, look, especially in in. Orica Greenwich, you know, we we started, you know, all guns blazing and, and a massive a massive um, opening sort of training camp here in Australia, and you know things tightened up after that. Um, but you know, we generally saw a bottle of wine on the table most dinners, um, which wasn't like you know get pissed and as party whatever. It was just just culture. 
you know, uh, being in Europe, being in France, there's a bottle of wine. Yeah, cool. The most of the restaurants just put it there, complimentary. So we had it, but that got removed, and even a rule got put in place at Green Edge that no drinking on races. You know, we had to have a rule in place, and pretty much from those days early, I want to say two fourteen, two fifteen on those days, there was a shift um, where I never really saw it go back to just sort of control yourself and make your own choice it was like the team had to make the choice for you we won a race you can have a champagne if not no drinking allowed on the racing so you know probably in the first five six years of my career it was up to you and um yeah up to your own discretion francois you must have some good stories about alcohol and cycling Tell us, um, i mean the, uh, if i get it right the, the first world champion in the history of cycling was a Frenchman on, you know, on these big bikes with the big wheels. Uh, I think he was a noble guy called Doligny or something. And he was, uh, the, the world championship was, were held in the Parc de Saint-Cloud. He was, uh, he was dead drunk in the finale. They, they thought at the time that uh, alcohol was a doping product. I, I, I remember stories of Francois Faber winning the stage maybe in, uh, in the West somewhere. And he was also, he finished the ten, last 10 case with a bottle of brandy and uh was that drunk and in, in, so they, they used to be used to be part of the of, of of the culture way of life in the same way as and in the north of france in the same way as you had cobbles on every street in the until the, up to the 1950s uh, it was common even for kids to drink beer because because water was not drinkable so i mean there, there was a culture as, as well of, of of this uh these days well of course the the the, the Cycling journalists never drink. I've known a pro rider in his last season, uh, you know, was uh, preparing very hard for uh, Paris-Roubaix. Uh, I spent a little bit of time with him on the Tour de France. And, uh, well, he had a couple of beers and a couple of, of glass, glasses of wines. I, I seem to remember, you know, the guy with the moustache. So, uh, anyways... But no, I, I must say I've seen guys get pretty, uh, pretty strong on on alcohol uh, in the in the peloton now. But he was in you know the Canadian Grand Prix in Quebec and Montreal. For a lot of riders, he was the last race of the season because they were not going to the Worlds, and and they were all staying in the same hotel. Uh, there was a nice bar in the in the Frontenac in Quebec, and you you could see and and even and there was a bar as well in the in in the in a hotel in Montreal, and there was lots and lots of riders at the bar at two in the morning <laughs> i can tell you but same of the thing is end of the season uh you know uh kind of relief at the end of a long season and yeah i mean they're, they're young guys they're healthy and uh there's nothing wrong with with them you know going for a few beers and and a few too many from time to time at that stage of the season but i, I agree with you that uh, uh that, that's that, that's probably been a very strong uh, change of culture uh from the yeah, past yeah, from the it's part. not too long ago that we heard stories. Heinrich Hauser tells a great story of winning a stage of the world to hungover or maybe even still sli slightly drunk. Um, you used to hear stories from the Vuelta a España of that nature. Um, not anymore. And Junior Alaphilippe, according to Patrick Lefebvre, teetotal or nearly teetotal since November 2022. Anyway, so um, the one thing I would say is I, I would keep your eye on the both the Belgian media and the French media over the next few weeks because both the Alaphilippe camp and the Lefebvre camp, they have a lot of friends in the media and if one, it could become a bit of a tit for tat in terms of 
leaked stories. Um, the problem is, I suspect that both both parties have got ammunition on each other, so they might not want to sort of draw each other into that kind of war of words. Well, and the, the last thing I can say, we, we found ourselves uh, back, you know, for a few times, we lined all yourself or, and Richard at the time in the same posh restaurants uh, on Racist as uh, uh, Patrick Lefebvre. And if you, you wanted to know what the best wine on the, on the wine list was, you looked at uh, Patrick's table and it was there on the table. Uh, so <laughs> that, mm. that's... I mean, that's, we're talking about... <laughs> I, did a, I did a wine column with Patrick Lefebvre for a year in Pro Cycling Magazine. I used to phone him up every month just to ask him about wine. So for him to be accusing someone of overindulging in alcohol, um, yeah, um, take some neck. Well, that's just about it, chaps, for this week. Um, I did want to look ahead a little bit to Paris-Nice and uh, Strade Bianche at the weekend. Um, we've run out of time to do that. Um, Paris-Nice is going to be a battle. I think most people expect it to be a battle, a head-to-head battle between Remco Avenepoel and Primoz Roglic. So um, there's going to be lots to talk about from that race i'll be there francois you may make an appearance on the podcast next week talking about what's going on there um we've got strade bianche of course at the weekend with tade pogaccio making his season's debut um again we will be reviewing that next week but chaps um in the meantime i'm going to thank you and um and wish you a very pleasant and sober well, it doesn't have to be sober we're allowed to you're allowed to um yeah um, lubricate your evenings on the cycling podcast anyway Mitch Stocker thank you very much great to be on here thanks for having me thanks Francois thank you very much the cycling podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore Daniel Freib and Lionel Burney every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.